Well, let's, let's try that again. Good morning. Make sure everybody's awake this morning. Somebody told me this morning as they came in, they said, if you look around, you see anybody nodding, just stop and say, how about waking that individual up over there? I just want to make sure everybody's awake before we begin this morning. I thank God for the opportunity to be able to come this morning and bring God's Word before you. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 15. This morning, the title that I want to focus on is False Assumptions. And maybe a better way to put that would be the lies that we believe Last week, as I sat and listened to Brother Nick take us through the Scriptures to give us a clear picture and understanding that God's judgment is coming, my heart was stirred in many ways. He spoke of what we should expect at the coming of that judgment, but He also challenged us in how we should live in view of the coming judgment. And he challenged us in two areas. He said to remember and rest in the good news of Jesus. And as I've gone back through that sermon several times in this week and and thought about that, I think more often than not, if we're honest, that we don't reflect enough on what Jesus Christ has done for us. And His going to the cross and dying and paying the penalty for our sins and then being raised the third day to bring victory over death. But Nick also challenged us that we should joyfully delight in God with diligent obedience. So as long as we live on this earth, before God takes us home, we should live a life that speaks and represents Jesus Christ and brings glory to God our Father. Now this morning I want to continue in that same vein, but I want to look at the coming judgment in view of the possible assumptions that we might make about where we stand in our relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, there are some things that in our life, we may believe that may not be true here this morning. But what really captured my attention last week was the how we should live in view of the coming judgment. As I listened last week, I was taken back to February 1984, 36 years ago, when I was confronted by the words of Jesus that many will hear on that day of judgment, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, in closing out the sermon, He brought those words as a challenge for them to understand that as they live life, do not live life under false assumptions. Well, up until that time, if you'd have asked me, or for you to ask anybody who knew me well at all, if I was a Christian, they would have gave a resounding yes. And I realize now, looking back and talking to many people after that time, that they all based it on the outward appearance of my life. If you had talked to any of those individuals, you would have heard comments like, Well, he's a good man. He lives a moral life. He's an an upright individual. He attends church. Matter of fact, he he teaches in Sunday school. He he works with the youth. He's always active and in church. He loves his wife and his daughter. and He works hard. He lives right. And on and on the comments probably would have gone. But in actuality, those were all false assumptions. The sad thing is, I was making the same false assumptions about my life as well. But those words, depart from me, began to haunt me in that month 
of February in 1984. For the first time, those words stood out as they had never stood out before in Scripture. For the first time, I began to see and understand in light of my life and where I stood that I was living under a ton of false assumptions about my relationship with Jesus Christ. And it caused me to stop and truly examine my heart and my life. Most important, my my relationship with Jesus Christ. It was in that time of examining that I realized again I was living under a lot of false lies. Those false assumptions. And if I'd have continued on the path that I was going on, a member of the church teaching Sunday school, actively involved, living a good life, morally upright, I would have ended up in hell. But I praise God that by His Holy Spirit, He opened my eyes and revealed to me that I was a sinner in need of grace. That I was living those assumptions falsely and that my life needed to change and if it didn't change that I would end up in hell. But since that time I've been captured by the thought that there are many in the church today who find themselves making many if not of all the same false assumptions that I was making. See, I believed it was because I had walked an aisle, because I had prayed a prayer, because I had signed a card, because I had gotten my name on the roll of a church, because I was teaching, because I thought I was living for Jesus, that I was okay. When in reality, I wasn't. But I want us to stop and think for a minute. What are some of the false assumptions that maybe you're sitting here this morning with your own, in your own heart and your own life? What are some of the false assumptions that we find people making in the world in which we live today? One of the biggest false assumptions often as I talk to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ is is the assumption that I've got plenty of time to get my life right. I don't need to to worry about that right now. I, I just want to live life and I want to live it to the fullest and I can do that later on. Jesus was clear when He stated, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But He says, Know that if the master of the house had made it known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and we, he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. There's not a one of us here today who know how many days God has put in our life. We don't know what tomorrow holds. So I pray you do not sit here this morning with that false assumption that I've got time. Scripture is clear concerning that day and hour. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. But you know, another assumption that I find as I talk to people often is the false assumption about our standing in the family of God. Maybe you're a lot like me this morning. Where I was back in February of 1984. I assumed everything was okay. I assumed my life was right. I assumed that I was walking with God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? Did we not cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? And Then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Don't base your standing in your relationship with Jesus Christ on a false assumption. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, John wrote these words for us. He said, I write these words in order that you may know that you know that you know that you're a child of God. Not a doubt in your heart. Not, not based on something you think you have done to get you there. But you know, there are many other false assumptions. I think of those who assume, well, I'm just not good enough. Just not good enough. I've got, I got to clean my life up. I've got to get my life right. When I get my life straight, then I'll come and I'll, I'll, I'll take care of, of my relationship with Jesus Christ. There are many assume that maybe I haven't done enough. I haven't worked hard enough. Assumptions abound in hearts and lives today. May we not live lives based on false assumptions, but let us examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Test ourselves. As Paul would say Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And my prayer is this morning that not a soul here would fail to meet that test. But this morning, if you sit here and you realize some of the things I have said about false assumptions are a reality in your life, there's hope. There's hope in Jesus Christ. So this morning as we look at Luke chapter 15, I want to back up just one verse. Because I think really the story of Luke chapter 15, which many call the parable of the prodigal son, really starts with the last verse of chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles open, I want to read beginning in the last verse of 14 and and through chapter 15. We find in verse 35, in the last part of verse 35 in chapter 14, it says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then immediately in chapter 15 it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. See, Jesus had put the challenge out there. If you have ears, you need to hear what I'm saying. And they began to gather around Him to hear the words of Jesus. But as they gathered, listen to what the scribes and the Pharisees said. And the scribes and and Pharisees grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. So He, being Jesus, told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so... I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, 
having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and let us celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. Now this morning I want to focus on the very last part of that parable. And yes, it's three stories in one parable. Jesus makes that clear. But many have called this the parable of the prodigal son. However, I believe if you really read it and understand what Jesus is trying to teach to those scribes and Pharisees here, that it's really the parable of the prodigal God. That's not a term that's one that I coined. I got that actually from Tim Keller in a book he wrote by that title. But the term prodigal means recklessly extravagant and having spent everything, which is truly a picture of the Father in this passage who represents God Himself and Jesus Christ, His Son. But I want us to focus on the last part of this parable and the elder son. 
This is the place that in my experience, you very rarely hear talked about. Because when you hear the parable of the prodigal son, it's always about the younger son and what he did. We just kind of skim over the older brother. But I believe they were both prodigal sons. I believe both were lost and in need of salvation. The younger clearly in the world and living in sin and outside of the family. But when we look at the older brother, he seemingly was obedient with no apparent outward issues. But if we look closely, we see all kind of issues. Not in the least his false assumptions about where he stood in the family. This was a clear picture to the scribes and the Pharisees to help them see and understand where they stood. But I believe it's a picture for us today, for you and I to examine our hearts and our lives, to see where do we stand in light of the family of God. Jesus gives three three pictures or stories in quick succession designed to challenge the scribes and Pharisees to examine their lives. But I believe it's also a challenge for us to examine our lives and not make false assumptions about our standing. As we examine ourselves today, maybe we ought to ask ourselves, what are the things that we want to test What would we look at if I am to examine my life? Well, let me challenge you. It all begins, I believe, as the psalmist begins where he says, Search me, O God. That should be the beginning of our search, our prayer. And we come before God and ask God to search us and know our heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. But I believe as we look at the older brother, there's three things we'll see this morning. So if you have your bulletin on the back, there's three little points I want to simply make for us to think about this morning as we think about this older brother. And it all begins with the attitude of our hearts. The attitude of our hearts. When we listen to the story that Jesus unfolds and listen to how He describes this older brother, what we see is anger, selfishness, a self-centered life, an individual who was uncaring and unloving and disrespectful and really disobedient. Although He had said, I've obeyed all your commands, Father. Think about that for a minute. Anger. Verse 26, it says, And he called out one of the servants, and he asked, What's going on here? What's happening here? How could I be left out of a party that's going on in our house? How could I not know what's happening here? And he's... He's told your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf. He's received him back safe and sound. Verse 28 gives us the first picture of his attitude. It says he was angry. He was angry and he refused to go in. But as we read on through the passage, we find out it's really all about him and not about anybody else. The attitude of his heart was a self-centered, uncaring, selfish, unloving heart. That's the attitude that he had. But I wonder where do we find ourselves if we compare ourselves to the attitude of this elder brother. Are we a lot like him? Is life all about me? See, that's what our world tells us. 
We wonder, where was his heart at? Scripture tells us that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Ezekiel pins these words for us. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. When when our attitude is right and our heart is right, we come before God, God creates a new being in us. And yet we don't see that in the life of this individual. Writing from a prison cell in Rome, the Apostle Paul wrote about the attitude that a Christian should have. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now he's telling us that no matter what unexpected disruptions or frustrations or difficulties come our way, we are to respond with a Christ-like attitude in life and all that we do. But when I look at the older brother, never do I see that Christ-like attitude. Paul goes on to write in the book of Philippians, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. But when he tells us that, He gives us already a description of what that attitude should look like. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition. In other words, there should be a selflessness about our life. If our heart in our life is truly changed, then it should be a selfless life. Then he goes on and says, But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. In other words, we should live a humble life as we live in the world in which we live. He says, each of you shall look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. In other words, a life of service. Selflessness lived in humility, serving those around us. That should be the attitude of our hearts and our life. In other words, the attitude a Christian should reflect is one that focuses on the needs and interests of others. If you examine your life this morning, can you honestly say that your life focuses more on others than it does on yourself? See, that's the challenge we see here. But we're encouraged by Scripture to be imitators of Christ as dearly beloved children. You know, I think about children as they begin to grow. They love to imitate those around them. What they see, what they hear, they repeat. Amen? But you know, we're also charged to imitate and model Christ's attitude and be clear reflections of the Lord here this morning. See, Jesus' attitude was never to be defensive or discouraged or depressed because His goal was simply to please the Father rather than to achieve His own agenda. In the midst of all of His trials, He was patient. In the midst of suffering, He was hopeful. And in the midst of blessing, he was humble. Even in the midst of ridicule, abuse, and hostility, Scripture tells us he made no threats and did not retaliate. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. For the elder brother, it was all about him. What he wanted, what he desired, how He wanted to live. How much are we like Him? How much does our attitude reflect the true state of our heart? But secondly, I want you to understand, it's not just our attitude, but the attitude of our heart leads to our actions. 
Our passage tells us that when he came to the feast, he refused to go in. Refused to go in. In so doing, he showed great disrespect. He was distant and defensive and discouraged and depressed. It's obvious not just by his words, but also by the actions that we see in this passage. Upon his brother's return, he does not show love for his father or his brother. As we understand the Eastern culture in that day, one of the duties of the eldest son would have been included reconciliation between the father and the younger son. And yet he never makes an attempt, we see in the passage, to try to reconcile the younger son with the father. But more importantly, even now, as he stands outside the feast refusing to go in, we see demonstrated great disrespect for his father. See, he should have been the host to feast the celebration for his brother's return. Yet he remains in the field instead of in the house where he should have been. See, this act alone brought great disrespect on the Father. He's so consumed with issues of justice and equity that he fails to see the value of his brother's repentance and return. And he fails to realize that anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. And that's where he was. For whoever loves his brother lives in light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. And there was clear hate for his younger brother. He wouldn't even call him his brother. He wouldn't acknowledge him. This son of yours is how he addressed him. But Scripture is clear, He does not know where He's going because the darkness has blinded Him. See, the older brother allows anger to take root in his heart to the point that he is unable to show compassion toward his brother. And for that matter, he's unable to forgive the perceived, the assumed sin of his father against him. He prefers to nurse his anger rather than enjoy fellowship with his father and his brother and the community because his brother has returned home and his brother is whole and saved. He chooses suffering and isolation over restoration and reconciliation. He sees his brother's return as a threat to his own inheritance. Daddy's brought him back in, and now I'm going to have to split what's left again. Not right. That's his heart. And the very actions that we see are expressing that. After all, why should he share his portion with his brother after he squandered his? Why hadn't his father rejoiced in his presence? See, I want us to understand this morning, it's not just the attitude of our heart, but the attitude of our heart is what drives our actions. And the actions that glorify our Father in heaven are those that bear much fruit. In fact, how we show we are His disciples are by the actions of our lives. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do all those things exemplify your life? Are those the actions of your life today? Now I realize none of us here are perfect and none of us live those out perfectly, but we should see them in our life. They should be the hallmark of our behavior, especially love. Yet our tendency is to sometimes look down on unbelievers. 
those whose lifestyles are not in sync with our Christian faith. And this is where the Christian life can be challenging. See, it's easy to show love in here. Amen? But when we walk out those doors back there, and we begin to interact in the world around us, on our jobs, at school, with friends, at the ballpark, wherever we may be, it's a different challenge. It's not easy to be kind to those who ridicule our beliefs and show contempt for our Savior or make a mockery of the institutions that Christians hold sacred. Yet Christ taught us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. You recall how He dealt with a woman caught in adultery? Her captors wanted her dead. They wanted to stone her. And yet our Savior, Jesus Christ, showed compassion even though He was the one who would die for her sins. He showed compassion. See, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, not to condemn them. And if Christ did not come to condemn sinners, then neither should we as Christians today. See, Christian behavior includes heeding Jesus' call for us to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. We are to share the gospel everywhere we go. In the second half of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, Paul discusses Christian behavior, which can best be summed up in just a few words out of those chapters. He says, Be imitators of God, Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. May we be reminded this morning that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's because we're saved that we're motivated to good works. So let me ask you, what are the actions of your life today? What what does your life say by the things that you do? Are your actions one that point people to Jesus and bring honor and glory to God? Or are they actions that demonstrate life is all about you? The third thing I want us to see this morning in closing is simply this. The assertions that we make in life. It's not just the attitude of our heart, although that's where it begins, which leads to the actions of our life. It's the assertions that we make as we live life. Listen to the words of the older brother. He answered his father, after his father has left the celebration. And you've got to understand in that day when the whole village was invited to the celebration, this was a big deal, a big event. Everybody was there. And immediately everything stopped when the father left and went out into the courtyard to address the older son. And everybody's listening to see what's going to happen. And the Father beckons him to come and join the celebration. But this is how he responds. These these are the assertions that he makes. Look, these many years I have served you. I have been a servant to you. Not a son. What an accusation. What an assertion he makes. And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. See, the assertion here is, I'm not part of this family. I want to celebrate with with my friends. Not with you. Not with my brother. 
But when this son of yours, not my brother, your son, when he came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. See, he immediately disparages his younger brother by casting doubt on the life he lived when he left and went to the far country. He has no idea how he lived and how he spent his money. And yet he knows that if I, if I make some assertions by him about him in front of the whole village that no one will ever want their daughter to marry him. See, the boy appeals to his father's righteousness by proudly proclaiming his own self-righteousness. See, he began to... He made all these false assumptions about where he stood in life and his place in life. And he did it all in comparison to his brother's sinfulness. How easy we are to make assertions in our life today by comparing ourselves to those around us when it's easy to find somebody that's living a life a lot different than I am. Amen? It's easy to compare myself to somebody else. By saying this son of yours, the older brother avoids acknowledging that the prodigal is his own brother. Just like the Pharisees, the older brother was defining sin by outward actions, not by inward attitudes, the attitude of the heart. Let me ask you, based on your assumptions here today, what assertions will you make on that day? Because as Nick showed us, every one of us one day will stand before Jesus Christ in judgment. Those words still ring in my ears. And I can't get them out of my heart and my mind. Those words depart from me. I believe some of the the most dreaded words to be ever spoken will be those words. But the sad thing is that there will be many who stand there on that day and will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord! Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not go to church? Was my name not on the church roll? Didn't I teach Sunday school? Didn't I sing? Didn't I I whatever I did for you? Didn't I do it all for you? And Jesus will simply declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lest our assumptions be misplaced. And we think it is because of what we do here on this earth. Scripture reminds us, For by grace have you been saved through faith, that not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let me close with this very quickly. done a lot of focusing on the younger son. But remember when I began and I said that many call this the parable of the prodigal son. But I believe it's really the parable of the prodigal father. Throughout the whole parable, In each story, Jesus builds in succession on the love and the grace and the mercy of God the Father. And He demonstrates it from the Old Testament. They would have understood the need for a shepherd when a sheep is lost to leave the 99 and go and get the one. They understood that. He's got their attention now. 
They understood the importance of a widow who lost a coin. And in her life, that one coin meant so much. And yet she dropped everything that she did and searched diligently till she found it. And then he brings them in to the story of the two boys and the father. And yet throughout that story, what we see is that the father continually sought the sons just as God the Father seeks us today. The picture of the father receiving the son back into relationship is a picture of how you and I are to respond to him in this day. Scripture is clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you and I, all of us are included in that all. And we must remember that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags apart from Jesus Christ. It is only by God's grace that we're saved. Not by works that we may boast. That's the core message of this parable. Our self-examination should continually drive us to the foot of the cross. May we be reminded, just as the Father in the parable, that our Heavenly Father's pursuit is relentless, it's effectual, and it's with great intensity that God the Father seeks those whom will be His children for now and for eternity. And God never gives us that pursuit. The Bible emphasizes there is no one who seeks after God. That our salvation does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. That to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And Jesus plainly tells us, My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. Paul reminds us in the book of Ephesians that He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. And in love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will and to praise of His glorious grace which He's freely given us in the one He loves, Jesus Christ. Oh, I believe that is why that old slave trader turned pastor, John Newton, could pen those words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. The Lord hath promised good to me. His Word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures." Oh, but when He closes, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. May the assumptions of our lives in this day be based on the confession of our mouth that Jesus is Lord in the belief in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. For it is in this that Scripture says we will be saved. It will be sad 
on that day to stand before Jesus. To come to the realization that He has not been my Savior and my Lord. And to hear what I believe again is the most devastating words that will ever be spoken. Depart from me, for I know you not. One simple question in closing. What assumptions are you making about your life and your relationship with Jesus in this day? Are they true or are they false? Let's pray. Father, as we close, Your Word has been clear, Lord. Your grace is sufficient, clearly demonstrated through the Father in this parable. But Father, help us to see and realize that even now, in this moment, that Your grace is sufficient. And no matter the assumptions we've made about our lives, false assumptions, Lord, You have shown us in our hearts where we stand today. And You call to us, beckon us, come, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and You'll give us rest. So, Father, there may be that one here this morning that realized they've been running from You. Been making some assumptions about life and their choices and when they'll decide to follow You. But Lord, You've shown them in this day there's a, they're a sinner in need of grace. Lord, there are those here this morning who can help them to understand by Scripture what that means. But Lord, we realize there may be those sitting here this morning who are in a relationship with You and yet not walking where they should be, having made lots of false assumptions in their walk, striving to do it on their own, apart from You and Your power. Lord, You know the needs across the auditorium this morning. So Lord, our prayer is You would meet those needs. And Father, we pray this now in Jesus' name. And Amen.